I thought the both of you invited me on this podcast because you thought I had all the magic answers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. This is Podvocative. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> another week, another episode. Yep. Um, yeah, we're excited to be back for week three. Yeah, but before we jump in, what was your favorite meal of this week? <sighs> My favorite meal? Um, you know what? I'm going to say something that wasn't a real meal. My cousin Iram and I, shout out to Iram, we grew up together and growing up we would always make this salsa together and it's like so simple. It's literally four ingredients. It's tomatoes, jalapenos, onion, and lemon juice. But it tastes so good. And I haven't seen Iram in months because we've been quarantined and haven't hung out in a really long time. But we decided to do a quick hangout this weekend and we made our salsa again from childhood it was so good we hadn't made it in so long so it's literally those four ingredients plus salt and then we eat it with tortillas and tortilla chips both (laughs) and um yeah so we literally like downed an entire tub of our homemade salsa this weekend and we watched new girl and it wasn't a real meal but i ate way too much of it yum 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 sign me up (laughs) <laughs> you guys should start bottling it and selling it i should make um a tutorial video maybe post it on the pod p yeah maybe we can do a whole episode on it <laughs> patronize me <laughs> well speaking of four ingredients i was only able to eat soft foods this week because i got my wisdom teeth removed so something that i ate pretty much every day this week was it's called sukrit and so if you don't know what that is it's pretty much flour sugar butter and like milk, milk. yeah And it's just those four ingredients, but it's so good. My mom makes a pan full and I just like sit there and eat the whole thing. Yeah, sometimes it looks like baby food, but it is the funniest thing happened after she got her wisdom. First of all, when she went into her wisdom tooth surgery, she didn't tell me she was going into surgery. So we were talking about something and then she said, hang on, BRB. And we always say that to each other when we're going into like a meeting or something and we can't talk. And then like three hours later, she comes back and she's like, my wisdom teeth are out. And I was like, I thought you had a call or something. She did not tell me she was going into surgery. Spontaneous, for sure. Yeah. I can start officially eating solid foods again soon. What is going to be your first meal? For solid food, um, canes, for sure. If you're from Texas, you know and you love canes. Canes? I haven't. Have you had canes the entire time you've been home? No, I haven't. But I've been I'm crazy. so surprised to hear you say I that. I love Canes. So good. Is Canes one of the restaurants that supports Trump? I, I don't remember. It's a lot. I just remember seeing like all my favorite fast food places. They talk about In and Out. In and Out. The good news is beyond the terrible news that all of our favorite fast food chains support Trump. That we have a good episode. Yeah, yeah, we we do. I'm excited for this one. So we have Imran Uncle. Well, we know him as Imran Uncle. And we met him at camp three years ago. And he always brought a fun, fresh perspective there. Um, and he did to our episode too. So we're super excited to be sharing this. Yeah, Imran is an openly gay, Ismaili, 
He is super involved in camps and youth development programs, and he works for AKU. So not only is he out, but he is out and extremely involved in Jamaati programs, which to us makes it even more special. And just to add, nothing that we cover here, either our perspectives or Imran's perspectives, are associated or affiliated with any official institutions. This is strictly just our opinion. Yeah, so we hope you guys love hearing his story. Let's dive in. Thank you so much for being here. I just wanted to start with that. We're so excited and feel so lucky to have you. Yeah, we're super uh, excited. I feel lucky in the same way that you guys think that my story would be interesting to you. And uh, I appreciate that. Awesome. So I would love to start out by just hearing a little bit about you, what you do, and then what's your favorite place to travel to? All right. So a little bit about myself. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. Uh, I am a very proud Californian at heart, even though I currently live in Texas. My parents were born in Burma. My mom was from Mandalay and my dad was from Rangoon. My grandparents, some of them were born in Burma and some of them were born in India. So that's a little bit about my background. And uh, a funny story about that is that, you know, I had explained that to someone in school, in grad school, and he was a white Canadian and he said, uh, can I ask you, are you Ismaili? And uh, I said, why do you ask? Or how did you guess? Uh, he said, you know, the way you said where you're from is a real Ismaili way of doing it. Um, <laughs> but anyway, let me digress. So I grew up in L.A., I did my undergrad there. I did my grad school in Boston. I, like most South, most South Asians, wanted to do uh, business or medicine. And then somewhere along the way, I realized I wanted to do something that wasn't related to financial gain, uh, at least for me personally. So I started, you know, I did my master's in a public administration, which is basically helping you um, have a career in the nonprofit or public sector. Currently, I work for Aga Khan University in East Africa. I joined the university to help strengthen leadership capacity in Africa on a joint program with Harvard University and AKU. Thank you for sharing that. And then what's your favorite place to travel? So uh, this may sound like bragging, but I will say that I've been to 100 countries so far. Wow. Oh, my um, God. That is impressive. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, again, in the most humble way possible, I will say that I have a favorite place on every continent. So if you can indulge me, I will say that in South America, I love Buenos Aires. I love Italy. I love Thailand. And in Africa, I really enjoy Cape Town. Wow. Well, I have to ask you, since you are a proud Californian and now you live in Texas, In-N-Out or Whataburger? <laughs> my God. Uh, I guess true to my Californian roots, I try to be healthy. And although I'm not vegan, uh, I do not have hamburgers that much. So I have not oh, had wow. Whataburger. I can't remember when I've had a Whataburger. Awesome. Well, now that we know a little bit about your background and what you do, if you could share with us a little bit about your coming out experience and how it was telling your friends and family how they reacted. You know, again, I think I was really lucky being born in the U.S. Um, and, and California. In terms of coming out, you know, a lot of people always ask, at what age did you know? 
uh, that's like the most common question I get. And, you know, I, it's hard to pinpoint a specific time. I would probably say that confusion had started for me by the age of like 11 or 12 would mean like I would be attracted or like enamored by men. I remember some movie, you know, preview that came on TV and I really wanted to watch it and didn't really know why, but I knew that I wanted to watch it. I had like a, you know, affinity. So then, you know, obviously over time that grew, I generally, you know, I have no medical background, but I generally like to say that people usually know around puberty when anybody else would be attracted to someone, that's when we would find out. And then uh, it just continued. Um, I denied it for a very long time. I remember praying every evening uh, to God, asking that when I wake up the next morning, please don't have these thoughts. I remember specifically, there were these, you know, there was a talk show with like these men, uh, really handsome men, and I snuck downstairs to watch it. And then I felt guilty coming back up to my room and I prayed, can I please not do something like that the next day? So that, you know, and I was kind of convinced that it was just some like phase where I had these thoughts that I couldn't control and something was wrong with me. And that lasted till probably like 18 to 20. And then I'm like, okay, it's not going away. It seems like it's here to stay. But I still think that there's something wrong with me. And I think it's very embarrassing. And it's not the way you're supposed to be. So I will just keep it a secret. I will not tell anyone. I will still live a normal life. I will get married. I will love my wife. I will have kids. And I will have the traditional life that every parent wishes for their kids. And then probably by 22 or 23, I'm like, okay, that's not going to work either. Uh, how about I just don't tell anybody and I just be single the rest of my life because that's much easier. And then around 25, you know, I had a really good friend and he kind of figured it out. And he said, look, if you thought that you were gay, I'm here to help you and I'll support you. And I freaked out and I said, what are you talking about? I'm not gay. Why are you saying this? And then uh, poor guy later, like a year later, I came around and I told him and then he helped me. I know at like age 11 and 12, there's already so much that you're going through. And there's already so much that's on a kid's mind. And I never really had to contextualize struggling with your sexuality at that point. Yeah, I think anytime when you are the minority, it's hard because you feel you can feel isolated, you could feel that people don't understand you. And especially, you know, the concept of getting married and a heterosexual relationship is so ingrained in our society. I just talked to my niece, seven-year-old niece today, and she was telling me she has a crush on a boy and they're going to get married and she already knows where she, they're going on their honeymoon. I guess my point is, is that it's just at such a young age before we even realize it, it's just part of who we are. And then when such a like integral part of who we are no longer is who you are, it creates an internal dissonance. For me, just hearing that, you know, you felt guilty for such a long period of time. That's such a hard thing to hear. I feel like, as Farheen said, there's so much uncertainty already. So after you had told your friend and you had gained support and come to terms with it, how did you tell your family? So the hardest, most difficult thing for me was coming to terms with it myself. It is really hard, I think, when you are battling with doing something different from what you've been told. So 
I was confronted with this notion of being a good son. And a good son meant getting married, having kids, taking care of your parents, and making your parents proud. And now, by doing this, I was putting all of that at risk. I was putting not only my relationship with my family at risk, but how my family was going to be perceived by other people. I was putting my religion or my faith, you know, into question. So there were all these elements where I had to kind of grapple with it and say, you know what, I'm still going to be a good son. I'm still going to be a good Muslim. And that part internally is really hard for people. So set the scene for us. Like, you know, how did you tell your parents? Was it one of those things where you sat everyone down, like in the movie? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it's a good question. Um, (laughs) So, you know, with that question and what Chico asked earlier, you know, I had a gap between when my friend found out and when I told my mom. And he was pushing me saying, when are you going to tell your mom? And I said, well, not now, you know, it's Chandra or it's Jamat Khan. I like, I can't do it today. And then <laughs> yeah. I, so I was finding every excuse I could to delay facing my fears. My friend just kept saying, it's never going to be a good time. It will never be the right time. Just do it. So then I got a little bit strategic. I would start testing my mom and I tested her and my friends. Actually, I would bring some gay movies home. I would tell my mom, oh, I heard so-and-so at Jamat Khanna is gay. What do you think about that? And... uh, you know, and test her out. And then, you know, we got to the, we would have conversations and we got to the point where she didn't really know about it. But, you know, from my perspective, I explained it's not something that you have a choice about. So she got to this point, well, and said, well, if if there's no choice, then how can you blame someone for that, uh, if that's who they are? So I felt somewhat comfortable that she understood what it meant Just to also add an important note, because I keep mentioning my mom, my father passed away when I was 11. So when I came out at the age of 24, my mom was the only one there. Um, And my sister was in school. Anyway, so I told my mom and she was as perfect as you could be. And she listened and she was very supportive. She did ask me, you know, if I was planning on telling other people. And I said, no, you know, and I said, that's just something that is for me. And I don't think other people need to know. And she said, yeah, I think you're right. It's not really anybody's business. And um, six months later, my sister was getting married and my mom was calling all of her brothers and sisters, my dad's brothers and sisters and telling everybody that I was gay. And a note about my sister's family they kept asking me you know when am I getting married and then finally one day I told them and my brother-in-law's mom my sister's mother-in-law felt so bad and she said I'm so sorry that I kept pestering you that must have put you in such a bad situation yeah just having that fear built up for so long and then having everyone important in your life being so supportive and understanding and I definitely was my own worst enemy once I started to tell everybody was fantastic Fantastic. You know, I didn't have any big like coming out party, but I did have I did make a list and I ranked everybody because I decided that once I tell one person, everybody will find out as we know in a community. I, you know, did it in order of priority. I think it was like 50 people and I called people and I told them and it ranged. Some people, you know, who I met in person were like, 
This is why you called me here to have coffee to tell me this. I already knew. <laughs> and then other people said, you know, are you sure? Or, you know, I've heard that sometimes people do this because they, you know, they had a bad experience where you may be rejected by a woman. And then you yeah. felt like, you know, you're not good enough for women. That's why you're interested in men. I explained to them that's not how it really works. Like, I love that you had a great experience. And it's something that brings me a lot of joy to know even before we had seen a lot of progression in this space that, that people were so welcoming. But I do want to say like, or ask, do you feel like you were privileged in that way? Do you feel like your experience is a unique one? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely privileged, absolutely lucky. I was, you know, I know many people whose parents were not supportive. A friend of mine said his mom locked herself in her room uh, for a week. I think I was really privileged. If I had to think back, I think that while I wish I would have come out earlier, I think since I was older and more mature, I think nobody could point to my age or immaturity since I was 25. I also think a lot of it comes to your confidence and the way you project if you're embarrassed about it, then people feed off that, you know, and I'm not saying that there's a right or wrong way of doing it. I just think that that is an element at play with human nature. And I think it's hard to be confident on something that is really scary. But I do think that once I had decided that this was who I am, and I am proud of it, and I am not going to back down, I think that really helped me because I projected it in a confident manner. We kind of touched a little bit on this. And you, you talked a little bit about it when you said you were young and praying. But how did you reconcile within yourself being both gay and Muslim, right? And this idea of like God still loving you. I think that religiously speaking, I think that there are a lot of people who make assertions in many religions that being gay is uh, wrong. And then there's other people who say that's not the case. And I think that, you know, everybody has their point of view. I think that that was for me definitely out in, you know, in my mind and a big part of my consideration. And I, you know, I try to talk to people, I try to get different perspectives. And at the end, I decided that this was something that I did not have a choice on. I spent, you know, from whatever age I could remember, 10, 11, 12, to the age of 24, trying to change myself, and I couldn't. And this is who I was. And I felt like I was a good person. And I felt like I was going to try to do good things in my life. And I felt like that was important for my personal relationship with God. And that made me feel satisfied that I was being true to myself and I was being honest and authentic to God. So based on everything you've shared with your experiences in the past, what would you say to an, a youth smiley that is considering coming out? Maybe they're struggling with telling their family, telling their friends, or just the religious aspect. What's your advice and guidance? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. It's a very good question. You know, I think it is so contextual and personal. Like, you know, just like I was sharing, you know, even in my coming out process, there were different phases I was in. And 11 and 12, I was in a different phase. And 14 and 15, 2021. 20, so I think it depends what phase people are in when you're giving them advice. And I think that whenever you're you're trying to help someone, I think it's not about uh, telling them what's right or what's wrong or what works for me specifically. 
It's about helping them think through what are they facing, what are their feelings, and what hurdles do they have in their mind that that they have to kind of think about and address. And depending on the situation they're in, that's what I would do. I would talk to them and I would help them understand what challenges and are they currently facing? What are they scared of? What are their fears? What is kind of preventing them from being happy. And then through that type of conversation, we could figure out, you know, where, what do they need to do to gain strength to be happy? Yeah. Like you mentioned, there's so much community just within the smiley realm. And anytime something happens, or anytime I hear of something with somebody else, it's like, within two seconds, everybody knows about it. And I think that also, I would think, you know, impacts people's decisions on whether or not to come out or how to come out, especially now it's sort of leading into like the age of social media. I know when you came out, social media wasn't quite as ubiquitous as it is today. Do you feel like the world of social media plays a factor in people coming out? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm trying to think back when I came out, and you guys probably haven't heard of this website. It was called MySpace. Yeah, um, I had a MySpace. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, like I went on my first date through MySpace, and uh, it was great. It felt like it was this new world that it was opening me to to have access to people that I normally would not have had. You know, I was growing up at the time when social media was taking off and it was a good tool for me. When Facebook started catching on, I just put, you know, I'm a male and I'm interested in men. And for me, social media was and still provides a range of different people who are out there, different perspective, different stories for you to learn from and see. And I think, you know, positively, I think it could be very positive. And I think social media can normalize different topics for people. I think it's a great thing. Yeah, it's you don't personally have that community in your proximity. It's nice to have that virtually in a way, like you said, and it being normalized and you see and relate to people that are like you. I mean, it's all in the way that you consume it because it definitely has negative effects, but I feel like it can be a positive thing, like you said. So you're very involved in youth development programs. Has it started to be more supportive to addressing the needs of youth that may be LGBTQ or may be confused or um, may have questions about it. Yeah, I find that one of the most important values for our community is inclusion. Uh, Another one, obviously, is pluralism. And I feel like, you know, this topic that we're talking about today falls under that. As a community, we are inclusive. We are accepting. Our value is not to judge people. I know in practice, there could be different people who do different things, but the value of our community is to include people and be open to different perspectives. So I think that those values play out in different ways throughout our community. And I feel very lucky, actually, because I think that's part of the reason I feel so included in this community is because of those values. And in relation to the youth program specifically, I, you know, whenever I have worked within our community, I feel like I have never been judged 
I have always been given a safe space. And I feel like when I have worked in youth programs, that has also been the case for others. There is a no judgment zone and people are always made to feel safe uh, and given a safe space to be who they are. And I know you guys do camps too. So I don't know. Is that something that you feel is true with your experience? Yeah. So, I mean, we obviously did camp together and I don't remember if you were the trainer or if it was somebody else, but I remember in one of our trainings we had, and this really stuck with me because it was something that I love to hear, but something I hadn't thought about myself. We were talking about how we have personal conversations with the participants. And if a participant comes to us with something personal about their relationships or their dating life, somebody brought up that instead of saying, do you like him? Or do you have a boyfriend? Or do you have a girlfriend? Saying like, do you have someone's special? Or is there somebody that you like? And that's something that was so simple to me, but something I had just, I guess, never thought about until we were sitting in that training. And then I I used that, you know, I, I said that to a participant. And it turns out this participant was talking about another guy, right? And so I felt really, really thankful in that moment that when he was talking about dating, I didn't say like, do you have a girlfriend? We also got rid of formal at our camp, right? Because it was very heteronormative, these ideas of going on dates and making it kind of a prom. Like for background, there used to be this formal at AU for the people listening and guys would get paired up with girls. And then the fact that we were the first camp to not engage in that and to really just make it a group thing, I think was really special too. So beyond just incorporating changes into programs to become more inclusive, how can we as a community do little or big things to be more supportive to those who identify as LGBTQ+. How can we as a community show up better and be more accepting and inclusive? Why would anyone want to be? What's the value of being exclusive? You know, I think I think people can see the value of it being that you, you aren't letting in the unfamiliar, right? Whether it's somebody who comes from outside our specific kind of ethnic makeup, because I know often... A a lot of us come from South Asia originally. I, I think this unfamiliar person or group or ideologies can be scary to people within our community. So something as simple as race or ethnicity, but then something a little bit less simple, like being LGBTQ+. I think the benefit of exclusivity to a lot of people is that they don't have to confront something that they don't know. I think sometimes people use it as a defense mechanism. If, um, you know, some jokes about toxic masculinity, maybe that have been made to them, they kind of project that onto people that obviously didn't do any harm in the first place. Yeah, I think it's 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 part of human nature and our DNA code to protect ourselves and to be fearful of things that we don't know. And someone who is different can pose a risk or a threat to your family or your community. So it's easier for some people to automatically assume that if you're different or if you're opposite of what you've been told is right, that you want to exclude. Given that, how do we go against that. That's something that feels like it's been hardwired into our brain. And that's obviously a loaded question. And yeah. There's no, there's no yeah. magic answer, but... I thought the both of you invited me on this podcast because you thought I had all the magic answers. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you do. <laughs> I think, again, we are so lucky, at least from my point of view, to be in a community that at the fundamental level says we will 
be pluralistic, we will be inclusive, we will be tolerant. And if you really embody those, just those three words, like it is such a wonderful starting point and frame of reference to what we're talking about now. Of course, in practice, it's hard. It's hard, you know, even for me, I pass judgments all the time on people. And, you know, even today with the society we're living in, the political environment, the world, I mean, there is just so much going on and there is a lot of fear. I like to just step back and question myself. Why do I have this point of view? What is driving me? So if I have a really strong point of view, what is driving me to this point of view? And sometimes it usually always goes back to my upbringing somehow, either my religion, either my parents, my ethnicity, something always comes back to that. So we have to understand that everything is contextual. And what I may give advice to someone today may not apply a month from now, or it may not even apply to their, somebody else who's in the exact same situation, because each situation is different. Thank you for sharing that. And so lastly, before we wrap things up, is there anything that we should have or could have asked you and didn't? We want to open the floor and give you space. Yeah, no, I want to say that I really appreciate you guys creating a platform and a space uh, to talk about different issues and different topics. I think that a lot of what we're going through today, you know, even this context of fear is sometimes lack of information and lack of awareness and lack of perspective. And, you know, you guys creating a platform to talk about this provides information and different perspectives for people. Um, and I think that that will then, again, give them a data point when they're talking to people and they may be able to use it in different ways. So I think, you know, I really appreciate that. So thank you for creating this space and forum. I feel like when you're a minority, you need to take it, uh, take a certain responsibility to create awareness for people and provide different sides because sometimes people may only have a certain perspective. And for me, it was about providing the perspective about being gay and being Muslim and that there are positive role models for people from these two minority groups. So I think that, you know, that's something I would leave. I think for allies too, it's important to create the space, which is what you're doing. But I think for people, whatever minority group you're in, to create the space where you can share information, where you could tell people your story, because that empowers people thank you first of all so glad you appreciated the platform but also i really loved your insight thank you so much yeah and the platform is nothing without people like you who are willing to share their stories for the benefit hopefully of other people so thank you for being so open and for embracing us and engaging with us today so now we can move on to a little bit of the lighthearted fun section it's going to be quick questions that you get a minute and 30 seconds to answer. So we have 90 seconds on the clock and go. If you had to go back 400 years in time, how would you convince them that you're from the future? I would tell them I'm gay. Um, what is the weirdest thing that you do in the morning? I have no idea. What's something you should do, but you probably won't get around to? 
Exercise. What is your go-to order at your favorite restaurant? Pizza. What would you do on Mars for fun? Jump around in the suits and be like without gravity. <laughs> what is something you notice immediately in others? Their eyes. If you were famous, what would you be famous for? My eloquence. What's a flaw that's out of your control? My height. At what age did you learn the most about yourself? 13. What TV sitcom family would you be a member of? Brady Bunch. What compliment do you like receiving the most? I'm kind. What that's time. Do you not understand? Hey, you got through most of them. Well, that wraps up our episode. Thank you again so much for doing this. Oh, thank yeah. you. Thank you both of you. <laughs> thank you for listening to our episode. So now we can jump into the listener segment where we share some of your stories that you all sent in. This week, we asked you all on Instagram to share a story just like how Armand shares in the episode about how he was supported by a friend and that really helped him get through a tough time in his life. So we asked you all and you all sent incredible responses. Thank you so much to everyone that replied. We'll highlight some of our favorite ones that really touched us today. And one of them is actually about our guest, which is so, so special. It's such a special story. But before we jump to that one, Farheen and I will share ours. (laughs) I can go first. So a time that comes to mind is when I was in college and I had two roommates in college, Durva and Anuva. So there's one time where I was just like casually sitting on the couch and my leg, my knee got stuck. I had no idea what happened. I couldn't move it even like a quarter of a centimeter. It was so painful. I don't know what basically happened in my muscle or my bone, but I was in excruciating pain. So none of us were really like strong girls, but both of them tried to lift me up with their shoulders and try to support me that way. And it was just so painful. And this was all happening on a Saturday night. And I think they had a birthday party to go to, but they obviously stayed back with me and made sure I was okay. So we called the ambulance and they basically put me on a stroller and my friends came with me to the hospital, basically laughed at me a lot, but entertained me, gave me company, supported me through that weird experience and now we look we all look back on it and laugh but it was kind of a terrifying time so I'm thankful that they were there to help me get through it so that's a time when my friends had my back literally and supported me. Farheen do you want to tell us a time when you felt like a friend had your back? Yeah, so my story is about you. <laughs> Shito and I do this thing where, so Jamathkana is not that close to either of us in Manhattan. And so one time Shito walked down, I walked up, we met in the middle and we were walking to Jamathkana together and it was a long walk. So it's cold outside. So I had two jackets on. So I took off the big one, my big coat, and then I took off my smaller jacket that I was wearing underneath. It was this leather jacket. I had just gotten it. I was obsessed with it. It was this really, really pretty leather jacket that I'm still obsessed with, but it was brand new at the time. And so I was walking with both jackets draped over my arm. And then we got to Jamathkana and I went to go put my jackets on the coat rack. And I realized that the leather jacket was missing. It had fallen out sometime between when I met Sheetal and when we got to Kane, which was like 10 blocks and a few avenues or something. So could have been anywhere. Anyone could have picked it up. I was (laughs) freaking out. So I ran out of Kane and I was like, I need to go find my jacket. So I ran out of Kane and I run down the street looking for my jacket on the floor. And then I see that Sheetal is running beside me. She had also left Jamathkana and both of us were sprinting several blocks down the street to try to find my leather jacket. And 
I didn't think she would run with me. I told her she could stay because I was dumb and I dropped my jacket. But of course, she was there running alongside me in the middle of Manhattan looking very dumb. But the good news is we did find my jacket. So we found it and she ran with me and then ran back. And she had my jacket. <laughs> That was a fun time. I think the funniest part of this story is that your brother was just walking in and he saw both of us like sprinting and leaving and he just gave us the weirdest look. <laughs> he um, was like, it's kind of over. So <laughs> confused. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, we received a special answer from Shireen and she said, Farzine has been her friend through thick and thin since the AU days. Last summer was really difficult for me physically and emotionally and she was there for me every step of the way and made me feel so fortunate to have someone caring and considerate in my life. She always checked on me and knew how to bring a smile to my face. I can't even describe how much her friendship means to me. So shout out to Shireen and her friend Farzine. Yeah, and we actually got one really special story. So this one was received pretty late. This was after we introduced Imran on our Instagram as our guest for today. But somebody reached out with a time that Imran was really there for him, and we thought it would be the perfect thing to include. So I'm going to read this message now from Raheem. Raheem said, I lost my dad four years back on 18th June. He was buried on 21st June in Kampala, Uganda. Imran was my boss in Tanzania, and I had resigned in February that year to move to Karachi to work at AKU. So when my dad passed away, I flew back for his funeral. Imran flew from Rwanda, I believe, and made it to the funeral. That one gesture meant the world to me and my mom, and I haven't forgotten it. There were members of my family who never gave it any thought to come. Yet Imran did. Also, because I had already resigned and moved to a new office, usually the ego of ex-bosses makes them lose all contact or presume that the employee burned the bridges. I think Imran is a great mentor and the world at large needs more individuals like him. Selfless and giving. Thank you, Raheem, for sharing that wonderfully touching story. We were so thrilled that he reached out to us with this story about our guest on the episode today. So we had to share. And so thank you guys for sharing. We hope you keep engaging with us on Instagram. Um, to everyone that has shared their stories, we love reading them. Please keep them coming. And we would love to keep featuring you guys in future episodes. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. And if you have any questions or concerns or comments or suggestions, please leave them in our DMs and we would love to incorporate your feedback. Thank you so much for those who have already shared and we will see you back here next week.